Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Now, Trevor, I know you've convinced some athletes that you still coach that Whoop is a valuable tool, so maybe give us a a little overview of how you use Whoop for the art of coaching. It's just like using the, the other metrics. I want to see how hard they're training. I want to see the work they're doing, but I have learned with my athletes that's an incomplete picture. And I have sub-athletes that have real good stamina and can push through things until they cook themselves. I have other athletes that can't handle it very well. Getting that WHOOP data from them every week is remarkably valuable. You know, I ask them to, to send me the summary of the week and I want to see on WHOOP, there, there's this week view where it shows you your strain every day, that shows you your recovery level every day. And I have seen, like I said, every athlete is different. Some athletes can tolerate it better than others. And you get to know them. But I certainly have some athletes where if that strain is always higher than the recovery, they're getting in trouble. We need to start heading, we need to find a period of time to recover. Uh, For a lot of my athletes, I want points in the week where recovery is higher than the, the strain and vice versa, but it, it is actually a very valuable metric that I can't see anywhere else. And it gives me a complete picture of their week that I can't get just from the training software. Today, a Q&A episode. We've got Coach Connor in Boulder. I'm actually sitting in Connecticut. And our guest coach today, Steve Neal. And Steve, you're up in Toronto, is that correct? A little north up... Um almost in cottage country in a little town called Alliston. Great. Well, you're up in Alliston. I never yeah. knew that. I moved here about 10 months ago. It was like 400 gra- kilometers of gravel riding, five minutes. Ah, away. nice. I, I used to ride there all the time. I, I somewhat grew up in uh, Mansfield. Yeah. Which okay, so none of our listeners know what we're talking about, but right exactly. around the corner. You betcha. So Steve is the co-owner of the cycling gym up in Toronto. And you may have heard us mention that name before. Steve's been on the program before, as you know. Um, The cycling gym has closed its doors as a facility, but they've actually moved entirely online. So now there is a virtual coaching business that Steve and his partner, Andrew Randall, run. You subscribe to a forum. You get access to your own thread. You have um, access to some amount of testing. If you have a power meter, many of the members have their own lactate analyzer. You send those results over to Steve or Andrew. Um, They'll do video reviews of that data. They'll explain any changes you'll want to make in the direction of your training and so forth. Uh, There's a library of workouts on there that you can access. The idea is to help people self-coach if that's what they have to do in a safe, progressive way right now, especially. But Moving forward, they're going to be continuing to build out this forum and this platform. Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about your coaching background? I, I, you are the co-owner of the cycling gym, is that correct? How, how did you get your start in coaching? A long time ago, I guess like 30 plus years ago, I was kind of trying my best to race elite mountain biking here in Ontario. And I, I kind of got into the top six or seven people and a few people that were beating me, I became friends with, and and I found out a couple of them. Uh, one in particular was riding back and forth 
to work an hour a day to, you know, that was the training that he was doing for racing. And I was like, wow, you can do so much better than that if this is how fast you are. So I had um, a friend who was a cross-country skier who actually was eighth at the Olympics in 50K and five-time national champion. So I was sort of surrounded by just watching him train to become that level of a cross-country skier. And I had this friend who I thought could be way, way better than me. So I started coaching my friend with Joe Friel's book and a lot of the stuff that I saw my skier friend do. And that was my first athlete. Wow. And you, you, you got a little bit more uh, experience and sophisticated along the way, I assume. Yeah. So the, the neat part of it, that relationship is I actually messed, totally messed up. I got him into the top five in the country and then kind of burnt him out. So mm. I heard about this, uh, a guy named Jörg Feldman out in BC who was coaching Jeff Kabush and Ryder Hestridal and a number of other fast riders at the time. But everyone said he was like crazy. So I was like, okay, I'm going to call him. So I called him up and uh, flew out to Camor and we sat there and met. And I'll never forget seeing riders training on a napkin. Uh, he helped me get, Paul was like, Paul couldn't get out of bed overtrained. And in less than four weeks, he helped me put him into the top five in national championships. And he eventually actually started beating Jeff Kabush. That's yeah, kind of yeah. how I got into this sort of science aspect of doing a lot of testing. You know, I bought a lactate analyzer and I bought a really high-end metabolic cart um, a long time ago. And so whenever someone said, hey, this training should improve your VO2 max, I'd be like, okay. And, but I'd test it. And so I'd take a bunch of athletes through the different protocols, but I would actually test them every few weeks, lactate, metabolic cart, all this stuff. And I'd be like, yeah, no, that actually doesn't work. It's things are getting worse. And, um, and I just sort of try to find out with real data from that person, what was making the person better. So I was using real world science equipment, but just, you know, in my basement. Which I've actually got to say, this is a good segue into what I would say is the theme of this Q&A session, which is all these questions get more at what is our experience uh, as coaches more so than the science. Because I, I think you bring up an important point. We can talk the science all day, but the science is one part of the picture. I think experience is, is just as important a part of the, the picture. And if you, you just have one without the, the other, you can get yourself off track. So it's important to have bits of both. And I do know you. I know that, well, you, you have a ton of experience and rely on that experience. You, you have done your time learning the science as well. I wouldn't even know. I've t done tens of thousands of lactate tests. Right. Like, I don't even know how many tests I've done, to be honest. But it's, it's a lot. And it's over 10 years or eight years of an athlete, not six weeks. So it's been, it's been, it's, it's really interesting. I still find it super interesting. I love to test new things and I'm always shocked what I see. So it's, it's kind of neat. Well, great. Let's, let's dive into some questions then and see how each of you is able to bring your various experiences to the table to answer our listeners' questions today. Our first question comes from Dan Swenson. And he's been darting back and forth between his home in Illinois and a place he has in Evergreen, Colorado. He's been listening to our podcast. He says it makes it much easier. And he's also come up with a lot of great questions during those drives. So let's ask one of them now. And this is a follow-up to episode 113, 
on recovery period lengths between intervals. We did that not long ago with uh, Sebastian Weber. Dan writes, I completely agree with your assessment of the impossibility of five times and five times however many uh, intervals you do at all out intensity, quote unquote, all out intensity. That type of effort is exceptionally taxing on the glycolytic energy systems if done correctly. And as you observed in the podcast, it takes a long time to clear all that lactate, which leads me to my question. What do you make of the FTP test protocols that call for a five-minute complete total maximal effort followed by a five-minute recovery followed by a 20-minute FTP measurement effort? Is the 20 minutes representative of what an athlete could do for a quote-unquote 60-minute FTP test and, and thus what their FTP training power zones should be? My personal experience is that I can do a much greater 60-minute TT effort than I can under the above protocol, which leads me to question the FTP training power recommendations under any of the protocols. Your thoughts, guys, here. And Trevor, I, I think that as you and I have discussed previously on the show, someone like Neil Henderson has a FT quote unquote FTP test where he's doing these five minute and 20 minute um, intervals in a certain order to uh, tax different systems and indicate different things. Let's jump into this. I was going to start with that saying that the protocol he's describing is the one designed by Neil Henderson. Uh, I think he calls it the, his four eye trying to remember his exact name for it, but uh, they they have it on the Sufferfest website. I think it's called 4DP. Thank you. I, I'm horrible remembering things like that. But the basic protocol, you have to do it all uh, within an hour. So you start with a series of five-second sprints to try to get your best five-second power. Uh, really, it's the last one that counts, but usually you, you do a couple just to get the legs going. Then you take a short rest. Then you do a five-minute all-out time trial. Then you take, I'm trying to remember his exact lengths. I, when I give it to my athletes, I tell them to take about a 12-minute rest, 10 to 12-minute rest. Then you do a 20-minute all-out time trial. Then you take another kind of 10 to 15-minute rest, and then you do a one-minute all-out effort. It's a whole lot of fun in an hour. <laughs> I don't do really much FTP testing, if any. Um, I used to 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I, I, so I, I really find a big variation in this test, sometimes upwards of 30% um, percent in different people. So instead of taking 0.95, you might have to take like 0.75 or 0.7 off. Um, the, I do some inside testing as well. And I think this whole clearing lactate thing is pretty interesting because some people, what, one of the parts of an inside test is a three minute maximal effort. And you, um, throughout the test, you do these variable intensities and you can't start the next test until the lactate gets below 2.5. So you have this starting spot of below 2.5 millimoles of lactate. And, you know, I'd say that really strong masters and elite riders can 
you know, combust lactate below 2.5 from eight or nine millimoles in five to eight minutes, sometimes nine. But there's some people that are 30 minutes, 35 minutes. Like they can, they, and some people cannot get back below 2.5. So I think even in the 4DP, you would have some people that would, that the, the results would be pretty challenging for those people who can't clear or combust, whichever terminology we want to use these days, the lactate before that next test when you're doing everything under an hour. I think that might be hard for some, especially kind of beginners, strong beginners. The idea behind this is, is to some degree exactly that. Uh, more it's looking at that anaerobic capacity. The reason he wants the shorter recovery between the five-minute and the 20-minute effort is there's a lot of athletes who can draw on anaerobic energy pathways, even for that 20-minute test, and then you get a, an overestimation of their threshold power. So you do that five-minute test where you're going to blow out a lot of your anaerobic capacity, and the idea is not to give you enough time to fully replenish it so that when you're doing the 20-minute effort, it's more of a true aerobic effort. That's, that's the theory behind the test. I still think there's going to be a lot of variation. Yep. No, I agree. And I think that in this day and age, there's two or three different softwares that will probably give within five to six watts of a person's uh, FTP that might even be more truthful than a person doing a, because both of those, I mean, the five minute doesn't necessarily have to have this perfect pacing, but experience of the rider will definitely come into play. Anytime you do any kind of like critical power testing, like, okay, I want a five minute hard, six minutes off and a 20 minute hard. The, the pacing or the way those tests are performed based on the individual could have quite very, quite a bit of variation. I have had a few athletes that I've given this test to, and it's exactly that, what you're talking about with experience where they do the five minute effort, they take a, a 12 minute break, then they do the 20 minute effort. And the first five minutes of that 20 minute effort, they actually average a higher wattage than they did in the five minute test. <laughs> and then they blow up. <laughs> Completely. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's that. <laughs> so there, what you're saying is if somebody is going to do this protocol for an FTP test, uh, there is a learning curve to doing it uh, in, a, in such a way that you get uh, data that's a, a bit more representative of what is possible or quote unquote right for that person. Is that what what I'm hearing? Yeah. One of the things I find always with when you do this kind of time trial testing, you meet someone, it's like, okay, we're going to do, let's say you're going to do this five minute and 20 minute test and they do them. First thing I do is take a look at the two average powers and sort of the profile of their tests. I'm like, I take the average of both of them and I give them the test the very next day. So like theoretically, they're not even recovered. They're probably tired, whatever. And I give them the testing, but I, I restrict the first half of the uh, test to their average. And then I tell them to go all out after that. So I'm like, okay, two and a half minutes at yesterday's average, then go as hard as you can for two and a half minutes. Then I say the same thing. Take the average of the 20, go at this average for 10 minutes, and then go as hard as you can for 10 minutes. And it's like, oh, you're seven and a half percent better. This is amazing coaching. 
it's, but it's not. That's one thing I've always done with, with this kind of time trial testing to try to speed up the process of learning is to help them understand how to start it. I have noticed whenever an athlete does this test and they go into it with a target wattage in mind, they fail. As a matter of fact, they don't even get through the test because they always have an idea of what number they want to hit for the 20-minute the test. And they just mentally shut themselves down because it gets hard. I've had multiple times where athletes have done that, contact me, said, sorry, I couldn't finish it. I couldn't get through the 20-minute test. What's wrong? And I've literally said, wait two days, do it again. This time, don't look at anything. Go by feel. And you'd be amazed how many times they then hit that target wattage. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Putting your gizmo in your pocket is a wonderful tool. Yep. <laughs> Trevor, I know you have actually done this test, performed this test a lot in your, in your life, in your career. Uh, I guess I want to back up a second and say of, of the protocols out there for finding one's FTP is the one he's described your go-to and what are those benefits of having an easy, so to speak, relatively speaking, easy protocol to go out and, and understand a little bit about where you're at in terms of your fitness? Yeah, I've tried a bunch uh, with the coaches I've worked with. They've had me try different types of protocols. I kind of like this one. It does give you a lot of useful information. None of them are perfect. The most important thing is all of them require a fair amount of interpretation. I have looked at enough of them from enough athletes that I can, for example, look at that 20-minute test and say, okay, that's not their true FTP, or look at it and say, that's, that's very close. You have to look at heart rate. You have to look at a whole bunch of factors to do that interpretation. If you don't have that ability and just simply take that average wattage, no, sometimes yes, that's going to be accurate. Other times, no, it's, it's not. So there is a bit of an art to be able to look at that test and interpret it. And I think there, there are several tests where it's the same thing. If you know how to interpret it, you can generally get pretty good numbers. I do like this one simply because it, I think it does what Neil was trying to design it to do, which is look at a few different aspects of your, your strengths and weaknesses. Very good. Any, anything else to add? If I was to just throw out what kind of my opinion, I would really like a simple test for me would be a pretty traditional three minute step test to failure. And then I would take whatever that peak one minute wattage is, and let's just call that MAP for argument. And then I would take somewhere between 70 to 72% of that. And I would see how long they could do it. And I find that in an MAP test, they, they only have to really focus on suffering for a short period of time. And I find that time trial testing sometimes is a bit daunting for some. And a lot of people don't have a lot of like practice at it. So they get nervous about the effort. So as I, I find an MAP test and then somewhere, in the, most people are going to be 70 to 74% for their FTP of an MAP test. What is MAP? Like maximum power, the peak one minute test in a three minute step test. Some people use 60 seconds steps, but um, so, you know, you might start at hundred Watts, go up 25 Watts a minute to failure. And whatever the peak one minute is would be considered maximal aerobic power. So very, you know, let's call it a proxy for VO2 
power. And then I find that, you know, of the hundred ish people at our gym in looking at everything, it was between 69 and 73% was uh, what they could hold for an hour. So we almost didn't, we would do an MAP test and then we would do workouts and find that, you know, if, if you can't do 45 minutes at 70% of your MAP, then your FTP is a little lower than that because if you can't do 45, you can't do 60. Right. So I don't know. There seemed to be a lot less suffering in that protocol. I, like I said, I don't have a lot of ex experience using this type of protocol. I understand it. I just find that sort of max effort time trials seem to get to people, especially if you want to try to test on a whatever, every few months kind of regular basis. The last thing I want to bring up, so we just recorded an episode with, with Tim from Training Peaks and preparing for that, uh, I read a couple studies that covered F FTP and the short version or the, the summary of them is FTP is just not a good correlate for threshold power. You know, for some people, yes, it's spot on, but you don't know if you're one of those people. For a lot of people, their one hour power can be very different from their true physiological threshold. So these studies basically said, if you're trying to figure out what your true physiological threshold is, FTP isn't a good test. What they did say FTP is valuable for is it does seem to correlate well with improvements in fitness, meaning if your FTP goes up, you're probably fitter. And I'm going to extrapolate that to a lot of these tests, including the, this uh, Neil Henderson's test. Well, you can make arguments about whether that 20-minute power is a, a decent estimate of your threshold and how much interpretation is required to get at that number. I do think a lot of these tests can be very valuable to uh, track changes in your fitness over the course of the season. Let's move on to our next question. Also from, from Dan Swenson here, this is a follow-up to episode 111, which was uh, talking about the myths of training in the heat and cold with Dr. Stephen Chung, another Canadian, I might add. So Dan asks, a couple of years ago, I had an early spring road race when it rained and was 45 degrees most of the event. It was really interesting to see that my power remained the same throughout most of the race, but my heart rate steadily declined during the event. When the lead group did a final surge on the last leg, I couldn't respond and rode in the final miles with hypothermia deeply set in. So two questions. First, are athletes with lower body fat composition more susceptible to hypothermia? And second, is there a notable difference in chilling effect when either wetness or wind are added? Trevor, I know you like to pick on people that don't dress properly. What's going on here with Dan Swenson and his uh, declining heart rate? Well, first of all, I've got to do a little segue here. Before we started recording, we were talking about my frustration that whenever we get Canadians on this show, we, we never make fun of Americans. We never <laughs> yes. get our payback. And Steve did the most Canadian insult I've ever heard, which was we were talking about Chris, and he goes, well, Chris, I, I like you. You're, you're almost nice enough to be Canadian. Only a Canadian would insult somebody by calling them a nice person. So uh, nice. Here we go. I told you I'll try to get, I'm going to try to improve. I need more practice. <laughs> Maybe I need a coach. I don't know. You, uh, hey, an American coach to te teach you how to be more insulting. That, that might work out. 
So heart rate. Yes. If you remember that episode with Dr. Chung, we talked about the fact that when you are in heat, your body tries to get blood to the surface right underneath your skin so that it can release heat. That's a good thing in the heat. And what happens is all your blood vessels underneath the skin vasodilate, so they open up, which increases the volume that your, your blood has to cover. So your heart has to beat faster, has to beat harder to, to keep that blood flowing. In cold weather, that's not what you want. You don't want the blood getting to the surface and rela releasing that heat. You want to retain that heat. So it's going to vasoconstrict all those blood vessels. And the way to think of this, think of it like a, a river network. If you block off a whole bunch of channels in a river, there's now less places for the water to go. So the water is naturally going to start flowing faster, which means your heart doesn't have to work as hard to keep that blood flowing. So in cold weather, because of all that vasoconstriction, your heart rate's going to drop. If you look at sports in the cold, like cross country skiers and and swimmers, they they generally do have uh, a, a layer of fat, or they're a bit doughy almost for how how fit they are, which really helps combat and you know being in the cold all the time. So if you've got a really you know, really lean cyclist, and, and especially if they're small, then they're going to run into these pr problems like that, that Trevor's discussing. Well, fat is a natural insulator. So if you have a layer of fat around your body, you're going to release le uh, less heat. So it's going to help keep you warm. Yeah, it, it really sort of follows logic. The, the simple answer to his question, are athletes with lower body fat composition more susceptible to hypothermia? Yes, because they're, they don't have that layer of insulation to hold the heat in. The, the second one, is there a difference in chilling effect when either wetness or wind are added? Well, absolutely there is. Uh, the wind chill effect, we've all heard of that, and that adds to how we perceive temperatures and temperature drops in, in, in cold weather and wet weather. And the wetness adds to the uh, evaporative cooling effect. So you, you even feel colder in those conditions. That's one side of it, but there's actually another effect from being wet. And this is one of those terms that I constantly forget. I literally looked it up an hour ago and I've already forgotten it. But all fluids, so fluids and, and, and gases, there is a, a measure for them of how much heat they can retain. Air, so oxygen, its value is pretty low, which means that you can heat up and cool down air pretty quickly. It doesn't take a lot. Water, this is, this is why they call water a heat sink. Its value is really, really high, which means it has to absorb a lot of heat to raise the temperature of water even just a little bit. This is the reason why you can walk around when it's 50 degrees outside or when the air is 50 degrees and you're a little cool, but you can be comfortable. If you hop into 50 degree water, you're going to get cold really quickly because that water is going to start sucking the heat out of you like there's no tomorrow. So it's the same thing. If you are in cold weather and you're getting rained on, all that water is just going to start sucking the heat out of your body and you can go hypothermic really quick. And that term is specific heat. So basically, wear better clothing, right? That's what it comes down to. 
you know where I stand on this. Yeah, it kills me when I sit there in 40-degree weather and there's somebody in either legs completely exposed or just wearing knee warmers. It's a good way to get really cold. Yeah, my big yeah, my big thing, you've answered all the questions, but my big thing is to really what's avoiding this is one of the simple things is is dressing more than properly because you can take stuff off and stuff it in your pocket. I think the real key is to, you know, almost wait a little longer than you think to start taking off those layers. And I, I, I sometimes think people, when they're racing, they just, they just don't think they, they're racing, so they don't wear a lot of clothes. But Randall always talks about when he was 15 and he thought he was going to try to be Johan Museo and go in a road race with just a jersey and shorts on, and he didn't even make it to the finish line. He's yep. like sitting, shivering in the gutter. So he never did that again. He just overdressed and started races. Like he looked like he was going for a training ride and it, it really helped him, you know, when it was, when it was cold and wet. This is your business partner, Andrew Randall. Yeah. Andrew Randall. Sorry. I was, I, I felt like I was just talking to Trevor there for a second, but yeah, <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Randall, my business partner, who's got way more experience on a bicycle than I do t- tells this cold story a lot. So it was clearly memorable as a young Yeah. Man. Yeah. Yep. No, I've heard from uh, a bunch of top athletes. I'm cl- I think Andrew said this to me as well. The expression, I have never had to pull out of a race for being overdressed. I've pulled out of races many times for being underdressed. Well, we all know where we stand on clothing, cold weather, wet weather. Let's move on to a question about how to structure a rest week. This question comes from James Kinney. He recently moved to Boulder from San Francisco. He's a big fan of our previous discussions on recovery and rest. And James writes, this time, how should I structure the rest week to get the most from it? Should I have multiple days completely off? Any opener intervals? What does that week ideally look like? Steve, we'll start with you. I think with the rest week, if you're talking about someone who doesn't have um, like a big background in cycling or say a big base, I think more, more rest will be very good for them. A lot of people tend to test in rest weeks. So I'll try not to get too off track, but so I think if you don't have a big background, then I, I think a short, a short rest week of four to five days is, is probably good to actually just really rest and do short rides of like a, a 40 minutes or sometimes even two 30 or 40 minute rides in a day, but spread out by three or four hours. I find that that really helps keep the coordination going so that when the athlete starts riding again, they don't feel flat. If you have more base and more riding in you, then I think that the, I kind of generally use, you know, I always give a day off and then I usually give a a double day of a couple of 40 minute rides, but then the rest of the week is just easy endurance. Uh, Usually at about 50% of the duration of their longest ride is kind of what I do. And then I usually, if I'm going to do testing, it always, it's always in the first training week back. So I, I would do some openers maybe in the fifth or sixth or seventh day of, uh, of a rest week. And, and generally speaking, there would be one coordination day, like a, some kind of a cadence pyramid, working on some cadence drills, but low power, and then maybe some short sprint work before we might get into whatever we might be testing um, after that, that block of training. But one question I have to follow up there is, uh, I think a lot of people have probably heard the term opener, but that probably means 
different things to different people. So what do you mean when you say some openers in there? I usually use like eight second sprints, which are really, really short. So I would say do an eight second sprint every 10 minutes during a, in, in the longer athletes recovery week, eight second sprint every 10 minutes during a two hour ride. The day before that would probably be a cadence pyramid. So a cadence pyramid, I usually use like a hundred RPM to start and 130 RPM at the top and hundred RPM again at the bottom of the pyramid, generally speaking about, about one minute at each and really trying to get the athlete to do that by generating the lowest possible power with the smoothest pedal stroke at those cadences. And yeah, that I, a really short sprint that is more about, it's almost like a strength workout. So, and I find that it helps people not feel flat when they get back on the bike to go do some work. I'm, I'm curious also to hear the, the philosophy behind two-a-days on those, you, you were talking about 40 minutes uh, twice in a single day. What's the logic there? I learned that from Jurg a long time ago when people were actually getting, so he used to use that a lot when people were sick. So if someone got sick while they were sick, he would really shorten their training, but he might actually have them ride for 20 minutes, four times a day. And, um, so I, you know, I, if I had athletes get sick, then I would, you know, I was implementing the same thing. That's sort of what I learned from my mentor and people seem to, so it was weird. You're always used to say that sickness was just, it was just a different kind of stress on the body. And so if you respected the sickness properly, you could actually come out of being sick fitter, but most people don't want to rest enough anyways, blah, blah, blah. So doing these multiple mini sessions a day, the athletes came out of this sickness with really good coordination. So they just didn't feel like they stopped riding their bike. They just, and they didn't have a long enough session to really cause any fatigue. So I started to do a similar thing in a rest week. And it just seems to work really well to make the athletes feel like they, they aren't flat when they get back to training, even though they had a really good rest. So I don't, I'm not going to pretend I don't have any studies. This is just all, like even from my own personal experience, but you know, if you keep things between 20 to 40 minutes, they seem to be not very stressful, even when, if a person's unwell and so if you're healthy and just resting, they're almost like a bit of a pain because it takes longer to put your shorts on. Right. But it's, it seems to work. And so I've kind of kept at it even when they're not sick, I use it in the rest week. So we covered that a while ago in an episode we did about uh, what to do when you're sick. And Chris, if you remember, there was a, a bell-shaped curve to how the immune system responds, where if you go short and easy, you actually help your immune system. And so we were talking about that in the context of being sick and helping your body fight a bug. But on recovery week, your immune system is taking care of all that repair work. So you, again, want to help the immune system. Once you start getting longer and harder, you come over the other side of that bell-shaped curve and you're actually blunting your immune system. You're, you're hurting its processes. So from a scientific standpoint, that would back what Steve is saying of do a, you, you can do multiple, but keep your rides short, keep them easy, because that's going to promote the immune system. That's going to help it with the repair process. So out of interesting, the bell curve, what was it? I did that. Was the duration different? Because I, I was always told 40 minutes was kind of this place to not start challenging the immune system. Is that what it found? 
You know, it's been a while since I looked at that. I'm sure I could go find that graph. I'm sure there's some individual variance. It's going to be different with a very experienced athlete versus uh, somebody who's, who's brand new to cycling. But I do remember it basically saying under an hour and easy, you're promoting the immune system. Anything over that, you're, you're starting to, to blunt the immune system. And Trevor, what do you think? What, how do you structure rest weeks given somebody's ability level? Well, I mostly just stayed quiet there because I thought Steve was giving fantastic advice uh, and really don't have that much to, to add to it. I agree with what he's saying. Keep the ride short. Keep them easy. Uh, I think those openers, exactly the way you describe them, they, they don't add a ton of training stress, but they just help the body. The only thing I am going to add, my experience with recovery weeks is when you try to map a recovery week out, that is when your body goes, ah, you fool, let me show you otherwise. Your body likes to prove you wrong. Those are the weeks where you just have to really listen to your legs, listen to your body, and let it direct where you're going to go. I have had athletes absolutely rip themselves apart in a camp, and three, four days later, they are completely fine. I've had the same athlete go and do a, a less difficult camp, and eight days later, they're still feeling it. There, there isn't a golden rule to it, except the fact that you just have to listen to yourself and, and give your body the recovery that it tells you it needs. All right, let's move on to our next question. This one comes from Ellis Pullinger of Rugby England. And this has a little bit of a, a story to set things up, so I'll dive into that now. His goal event this year had been the British U23 Time Trial Championships, which are now canceled due to coronavirus, COVID. He's now changed his focus for the year to be the National Hill Climb Championships at the end of October. Now, for those who know this little niche of British cycling, these, these hill climbs, you know what that means. You know that these things are excruciatingly intense, very short. We're not talking about Alpe d'Huez climbs or Tourmalet climbs. Uh, the climb used this year at the national championships in October, for example, is going to take between two and two and a half minutes for the fastest riders. And Ellis hopes to be among them. So Ellis's question is, Obviously, these are quite different events with different demands. I will need both a very good aerobic and anaerobic system to be at the sharp end of the field. Initially, the events were far enough apart that I could peak for U23 Nationals, take a break, and then base build peak for the Hill Climb Championships. With my original goal not taking place, can I base build base build until September when I will start racing Hill Climb TTs in prep? for the national championships, or should I still take a break and reset? I don't and won't need a mental break, he says. It's only a physical break I'm concerned with. Given I haven't peaked yet this year, do I need to take time off? Essentially, what I'm asking, do you need to change your training regularly, or can your body get tired of one type of training, even if you're progressing that type of training? Trevor, I'm going to start with you this time, what do you think here for Ellis? And obviously this applies probably to quite a number of people out there who are pivoting and having to change what they're 
goal is for the year. And they're, they're wondering, am I stagnating if I do this for too long? What should I do here? Well, I'll admit, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what uh, Steve has to say here. But I'm going to just start by saying there is, we're in uncharted territory. There's no science here. Uh, yes, there are a lot of people who don't train for events. They just ride their bikes, including a lot of listeners of the show. But something I've never seen before is where you have athletes that are targeting events and said, okay, I'm going to get ready for the race season in, in March and April, and then that didn't happen. So they went, okay, now I'm going to get ready for May and June, and that didn't happen. And then started to think about July and August, and now that doesn't look like it's happening either. So they're, they're kind of making it up as they go. So there's, I've never seen any study or science to, to address that. So I think you're going to get much more of just here's our opinions on this, knowing that this is, Steve, I don't know about you, but this is the first time I've ever uh, experienced this. And the short version of my answer is I love doing base work. I think base is where you raise your level. But I do think with any type of training, you hit a point where you plateau and you can get stale. And you look at the nature of base training, which is much more aerobic in nature. I think if you just do it constantly, you run that risk of turning yourself into that giant endurance animal who has no top end. You know, just kind of that tank who can chug away at a decent speed but not go hard. And if you're targeting hill races that are two and a half minutes, you don't want to take your body in the long term in that direction. So the, the short version of my answer is, yeah, even though you don't have races right now, I think you need to change it up. I think you need to get some intensity in there, then take a break and then hope that you got some races coming up in the fall and, and build towards those. But Steve, what do you think? Yeah, I think, uh, I agree. I think, you know, I'm a big believer in the aerobic system and, and whatnot. So, you know, I, I kind of always relate to sports like rowing where the events four minutes long, but they train six hours a day, 30, 35% skill work on the boat. And then the rest is training and, and they, they, they might only sort of sharpen three weeks out. And so they're going from 30 hours a week to sharpen for a four minute event. So I, 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 I really think looking sometimes at other sports that have these durations and seeing what they do, track cycling has some of these events and, uh, but yeah, you can't, you know, even as a big believer in endurance, I guess some of the things that I've done during this time are used Zwift races of certain durations with some people. I've used Strava segments where it's safe with other people. And, um, and then I've, I've had people find their one or two people in their bubble that they just ride with once every two weeks. And, um, you know, kind of old school, just like go on your mountain bike. You're going to go on these trails for two hours and you're going to, you're going to pretend race your buddy. So I've, I've kind of tried to look for ways to inject some intensity that's above what the person's comfortable doing. Um, I've always found that finding the right race to prepare is better than most intervals. Um, yeah, those are three things that I've done. I generally find people can handle three to five weeks of this injection. And then you just have to get, like, I almost look for an improvement with positive comments from the athlete. And then I pull them back out of that and go back to endurance and tempo. Trevor or Steve, any 
sense here of how long is too long to stay in base mode if you're looking to be sharp for an event September, October time? Or does it vary completely by the individual? Sure, there's individuality, but most people can get pretty sharp in three to five weeks. One of the interesting things to, to, to ask or to suggest is when you're working on, or at least when you're working on the aerobic system, one of the things I always do is test the anaerobic system. So I want to see how much improvement I'm getting in the anaerobic side of things. Let's call it one to six minutes without training there, because I don't think many people fully exhaust their aerobic training that's contributing to this anaerobic world. And I know Sebastian's kind of alluded to that a few times on the podcast is I think people shortcut the aerobic side of things and they aren't patient or they don't wait long enough to get that fully developed. So if you, whatever, however you want to work on your base and your three minute time trial is still improving, well, that happens to be this person's race duration. So if it's still improving, I'd be patient and wait. And then, you know, and then, and then in that three to five week window start to sharpen. And I think the question touched on something really important, which is the mental side. You said, I'm not physically getting tired, but mentally getting a little tired. And I think that's important. And I'm personally experiencing that myself. I took the approach of, oh, races got pushed back, so I'm going to do more base. And just kept saying, I'm going to do more base and do more base. And I noticed in May, for all intents and purposes, I, I was going into some sort of overtraining mode, which confused me because I'm like, I'm not training that hard and I'm not racing. Why am I, I overtrained and realized I was getting mentally burnt out. I was just getting tired of doing more thresholds and more thresholds and more thresholds. So I took a little bit of a break and a couple weeks ago, so we're, we're in the beginning of July now, I started doing sprint intervals. And why did I do those? If you look at it from a physiological standpoint, no, it's kind of a stupid thing to be doing right now. There's no reason, except they're fun. I'm motivated yeah. to train again. So yeah. you know, I kind of accepted the, the only event I'm probably going to be doing this year is, is Tour of Tobago, which is end of September. And if I keep going, doing base until mid-August when I do my build towards Tobago, I'm, I'm going to be mentally cooked. So I'm having a little fun right now. I'm doing some sprints. Then I'll, I'll take a break and then go into my proper build to Tobago, but hopefully in a much better mental place. This episode of Fast Talk is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress you put on your body throughout the day from your workouts and the normal stressors of life. What's great with Whoop is that every day when you get up, you get a recovery score based on your HRV, resting heart rate, and sleep performance that can be used as an indicator to how to approach your day. The Whoop app has built-in features like the Strain Coach, which actually gives you target exertion goals worked out optimally for the level of intensity your body is signaling it can handle, perfect for working out at home. And based on how strenuous your day is, the app has a built-in sleep coach, which actually lets you know how much sleep you should be getting so you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals, which you can set. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code FASTTALK. That's F-A-S-T-T-A-L-K at checkout. Go to Whoop, 
That's W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Fast Talk at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop. All right. Our next question comes from Dror Hadadi, a cycling coach in Israel. He writes, During your recent episode on rest periods between intervals with Sebastian Weber, you raised a point about the impact of recovery time between intervals on lactate removal and performance in the next intervals. Specifically, you mentioned Dr. Seiler's article, which showed no difference between two minutes and four minutes rest period. According to Dr. Weber, the reason why there was no difference is that in both cases, the ATP phosphocreatine system recovered to the same level and the lactate levels were pretty much the same. So from a physiological perspective, two minutes and four minutes rest are almost the same. Now comes my question. In the case of eight-minute VO2 max efforts, should we recover much longer to be able to generate similar power each time? Trevor, what do you think? First of all, is there such a thing as an eight-minute VO2 max effort? Uh, That was the first note I wrote. If you can do not only an eight-minute VO2 max effort, but multiple eight-minute VO2 max efforts, you have an ability to suffer that nobody else in the world has. Uh, and let's just out of respect for Sebastian, let's quickly define what, what I think he is referring to when he says a VO2 max effort. So this is the power. If you went and did a VO2 max test in a lab, this is the power that you would hit your VO2 max at. So it's above your threshold power. There is individual variance, but it's usually pretty high and quite, you know, so on the road testing, they tend to say, an all-out five-minute effort uh, somewhat correlates with your your VO2 max power. So to be able to do eight minutes at that power, well, actually, by that definition, it's not VO2 max because VO2 max power is what you can do for five minutes. Uh, And even just doing five-minute intervals, if you did multiple five-minute intervals as hard as you can do five minutes, Mm -hmm. that's just going to be the worst workout of your life. Uh, I'll I'll let Steve kind of take it from here and talk about what he thinks is the appropriate recovery length. But the, the thing I'm going to say is if you're doing eight minute intervals, these are going to be much closer to your threshold power than your VO to max power. For me, I, I don't do any uh, intervals longer than three minutes when I'm trying to work on this with people. So I don't do like, I don't do a lot of traditional five by fives or things like that. I, I find that I have a lot more success in the 20, 30, 40 second range and doing mini sets like three minutes of 30-30s, two minutes off, three minutes of 30-30s, two minutes off, and so on. Or something of that nature where the athlete can work hard. I, I always ask, I want respiration involved, and I want it to be noticeable, and I want heart rate to get to at least 90%. And I do, I want to see the heart rate stay, you know, kind of high during that off, um, which there's, you know, lots of famous people who have looked at 30-30s in the past. So it depends on the athlete, whether I go to sort of eight, 10 or 12 times, say 30, 30, which is fairly traditional or, or it's more like broken up in mini sets, but I don't. And, and therefore we get into what's the rest in between those mini sets. And I'm, I don't really know if there's much of a difference. I've, I've sometimes tell people to wait four minutes and then other times I tell them to wait until they feel ready and add two minutes. Um, I've done weird things where I've, had athletes do, you know, do intervals, 
using things like a moxie and they can't see a timer and they can't, they can't see any numbers. And I just, they, they almost go when the little device would tell me that they should go uh, by feeling. So I'm not much of a long interval guy. I'm sorry. Well, look, I, so I used to race on team Rio Grande. And when I was on the team, Neil Henderson was the team coach. I was getting ready for cascades and was really focused on that, that last day, the, I forget the name of the loop, but it has just this brutal, every lap, this brutal five minute effort. You hit this hill that's about probably a minute and a half, two minutes, but then you crest the top and you have another two, three minutes of this 2% grade where the field just shatters every time. So I went to Neil and said, I really want to work on that ability to put out that big five minute power what's your suggestion? And he just said, 30 thirties, best, hmm. best way to train it. So I, I've heard that from a lot of coaches. And I agree that if you're trying to train that power, unless you have some absolutely amazing ability to suffer doing shorter intervals where you can actually hit that power again and again and again is, is the way to train that side of your, your system. You know, we always talk to people about being consistent in their training. And I think that shortening those intervals Let's pretend five by five is the 100% best way. Let's, it, but if someone can get, you know, 97% of the way there by doing something that's a lot less mentally taxing and therefore they can do it for years, like where will they be four years from now? And I've always found that one of my biggest things with people that I work with is really trying to keep them at this for a long time. The last thing I just want to bring up uh, to answer this question. So... I think we're all on the same page. If you're doing eight minute intervals, you're not doing VO2 max work. Uh, I personally think of those as, as more working your, your threshold power. When we talked to Sebastian, we talked about the fact that the, the aerobic energy pathway is a little sluggish. It takes time to get it ramped up. So my personal opinion is you actually want short recoveries. You don't want to give it time to, to cool down that much. You want to recharge some of those short anaerobic energy systems get some of your PCR recharged, uh, but otherwise get right back to it. So when I give athletes eight minute intervals, which again, I give it to them at their threshold power, I give them two minute recoveries. All right. We've got time for one more question. This one comes from Devin Knickerbocker. You've probably heard his name before. He writes us many great questions. Keep it up, Devin. We love your enthusiasm, your curiosity, Devin's question of the day, have you ever covered the concept of, quote, blowing up? I think of this as being different than a good old school bonk, but it's the kind of thing that happens when you, for example, try to stay with the lead group over a hill, crack and can't hold the power, get dropped, and then afterwards heart rate doesn't come down and the power never really comes back. Also, I've had it happen from doing one too many intervals. It could just be hydration, but I think I've had it happen even when hydration wasn't a thing. What is blowing up? Oh boy, this is a big one. Steve, you want to start? (laughs) I was just about to say, go Trevor. (laughs) We're both trying to pass the buck here because this is such a big question. (laughs) You mentioned the word homeostasis in the past and... I've seen it where in a race, I mean, you know, keeping my background is mountain biking. So generally speaking, a fairly well-paced race at the top. And 
I've seen it where an athlete's kind of coming from behind or they're moving through the field. So 10th and then eighth and then sixth and then third and then second. And then they get to the front and there's still a lap and a half to go and they really change. So they've, they've been riding faster than everyone to get where they are. And then they sort of, they attack a little bit too hard into this new time trial place. And, and I've seen people blow up from, from changing what was probably an optimal homeostasis at that time. That uh, change of pace is one thing that can, can affect this. Tag, you go. I love that you brought out the word homeostasis because I stole it from you. Because I had, but my first note here was body is always trying to maintain homeostasis. Well, that's why I tried to mention your name, even though it was your word. <laughs> I, I went first, so I figured I could steal a word. No, please do. I'm glad you did. I read a, a, a really good review a long time ago, and being scientific, they, they didn't use the term blowing up, so they talked about reaching fatigue or failure. But that's where I really got introduced to this whole concept of our bodies are trying to maintain homeostasis and blowing up or fatiguing or failing is when you get too far out of homeostasis. Because when you get too far out of homeostasis, you are doing damage to your body and your body is basically going to shut you down before you can do permanent damage. Now, what causes that? There's a lot of things that your body tries to maintain in homeostasis. This particular review, I think, identified 13 different ways when you're going really hard, you can take your body out of homeostasis and basically said, we don't know which one of these causes you to fail. It could be that all of them cause you to fail. It could be that every time it's, a, it's, a, it's one of these, but it's a different one. But the, the main idea here is you have gone at a intensity or effort where you've taken your body too far out of homeostasis and your body goes, nope, stop that. I'm shutting you down. So should we talk about how to avoid blowing up? Yeah, definitely. Um, don't go as hard, get fitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I just think sometimes, you know, trying, you know, trying to just be confident in the result that you're meant to have on that day and knowing your body allows you to keep training and keeps your mind positive. Right. So to learn how to not do it is to really learn how to read your own body and understand what you're capable of at that time. And, and yes, we want people to challenge themselves and stress themselves, but I think we also have a pretty good idea of what we're ready for and to try to stay within that. And then through our training, improve our, our fitness, like you said, to then go back and, and try again to stick with say that person or on that hill. Yeah. And uh, to continue with that, I would say, knowing your limit is, is critical. And the example I will give, Steve, you'll know this well. So there's the bridal path loop in Toronto. On this loop, this race that they do in the mornings, there is this brute of about, uh, depending on how strong you are, a, a minute 10 to a minute 30 climb that is like 12% and it hurts like you wouldn't believe. And I was trying to help out this athlete who kept blowing up in that climb. And I had a conversation with him about it. And I said, so it's explained to me how you're approaching this climb. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm trying to stay with the leaders. And so I go really hard at the bottom and I get halfway up and then I, just, I can't keep going. And then they really drop me. 
And so I asked him, like, what's the fastest time you've ever done up that climb? And he goes, oh, about minute 14. And I go, and how fast do the leaders go up? Uh, about a minute four, a minute five. So I'm like, so your fastest time that you've ever done is nine seconds slower than their time. It's like, yeah. I go, then you can't stay with them. That's beyond your limits. You're going to blow up every time trying to stay with them. It's like, but no, I have to figure out how to stay with them. I'm like, but you can't. So why don't you go your fastest time up the climb and then try to finish as best as you can? But it, you physically, you don't have the fitness, the level to stay with them. And he just, he wouldn't, he, uh, it, that just frustrated him. He's like, why would I actually let people go? Even though he was blowing up and his times up the climb were like a minute 25 because of how badly he blew up. And he just couldn't accept the, well, if you just go your own pace, even though you're going to get dropped, you're going to get to the top faster. He just really had a hard time with that concept. I never had a hard time with that concept. I was always <laughs> really, really good at watching people right away. I've gone much better at helping people stay with other people than myself. But what the heck, you know? There was one last part to this question that I think we need to answer, which is, is blowing up different from a good old school bonk? I'd say it's different. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think of, you know, when I hear people talk about bonking, I, I really think it's a, an energy. It's, it's, you know, either they've, you know, they've been training for an hour, four days a week, and they tried to go in a 200 mile gravel race. That's just maybe a choice but it's usually if someone's in a in an event that's that they're roughly trained for it the old-fashioned bonk is um mostly nutritional yeah um would you agree with that i think of a bonk purely as a drop in blood sugar or glycogen depletion and so it's either you know usually i don't know what you find but i i see mostly that people are they're just not eating close to enough which is way back at the beginning, we were talking about different kinds of testing, but that's one of the reasons I like to get people tested so they can understand like a sort of energy supply and need because when they see how much energy they use and how much is required, and then they, they, they can do some math and eat 33 or 35 or 40% more than they're normally. And all of a sudden, wow, I feel really good, not only on my ride, but on the next ride and the next ride. So that the nutritional piece is something I think that really helps people get more out of their current fitness. Well, Steve, it was a pleasure having you on the show today. Hope to get you back again. Well, thank you. If like I'll always, I'll, I'll always come back if you think this is useful and, and helpful for the listeners, and I appreciate you having me. We'll see what feedback we get from people, and we'll let you know if you were terrible or not. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. <laughs> You see, Americans aren't nice to us. Why are we nice to them? Uh, but he was I'm, okay. I'm such I'm such a jerk. I've got <laughs> I've got a I've got a reputation. There are other things I've been called by guests. Um, I won't repeat them on the air. Okay. But uh, a very nice person actually called me a very un unnice thing once, right before we hit the record button. Okay, you are not nearly friendly enough to be Canadian. Sorry. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm a disgruntled New Englander. That's good point. <laughs> Curmudgeon, curmudgeonly, you might say. I learned, I learned that from my dad. He's a true curmudgeon. 
You know, and look, I've, I've lived in New England. I, I, I enjoy New England, but I have heard people talk about all parts of the country where they're like, oh, I went to Montana. The people are really nice there. I went to Texas. The people are really nice there. I've never heard somebody say, I went to New England. The people were really nice there. Oh, you haven't met the right New Englanders. My mom is 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 really nice. My dad is not. <laughs> I I'm joking. They're maybe they'll listen to this and and um scold me or something. My mom will listen to this and she'll make me cookies. See, I lived in in Boston for three years, and by the end of that three years, I terrified other car drivers. I was the biggest. What was it? Masshole is what they call it. Yeah, yeah, you're a masshole. On the road, and I had lived in Boston enough that I was really proud of that. Yeah. Well, New Englanders in cities aren't really New Englanders. They're just city folk. Fair enough. Yeah. You have to have a stone wall in your yard or uh, like a, I don't I don't know, a, a flag with only 13 stars on your house to be a real New Englander. <laughs> a candle in every window? Yes. I can. Well, Trevor, if I could show you the can the window I'm sitting in front of right now, I'd show you the candle sitting here. <laughs> I knew it. All right, Steve. Thanks so much. That was great. Ooh, no, we we would love to have you on again. Your answers were fantastic. Thanks a lot. Well, that was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at fastlabs.com or record a voice memo on your phone and send it our way. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.